It's cute. Good morning. Did you guys have a good 4th of July? Can I ask an honest question? Um, anybody fire off their own fireworks? Looking for hands? Got a few? Okay. We did as a family. It was great. Um, in Bakersfield, <laughs> where it's legal. But I, I thought I actually I thought I wanted to, to start off this this morning by just setting the record straight on some things. Um, there's been a lot of talk from this pulpit about pink pastoral wear, <laughs> and um, just for the record, pink is a girl's color. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, there we go. I just want to get that out there. Once and for all. Glad Jack's back in Brazil. All right. I want to read you a little quip from Randy Alcorn, his book, The Treasure Principle. The streets of Cairo were hot and dusty. Pat and Rachel Thurman took us down an alley. We drove past Arabic signs to a gate that opened to a plot of overgrown grass. It was a graveyard for American missionaries. As my family and I followed, Pat pointed to a sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden, a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth, rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. Refusing even to buy himself a car, Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. After only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt... He contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. I dusted off the epitaph on Borden's grave. After describing his love and sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for Muslim people, the inscription ended with a phrase I've never forgotten. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. There is no explanation for such a life. What would motivate a young man to turn his back on a life of ease and comfort to embrace a life of suffering? Well, one motivation is the resurrection. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Most of you are probably familiar with the resurrection. We focus on it, especially around Easter. Paul, however, who penned this letter felt it was necessary to focus on it with the struggling church in Corinth. Now, from what we know of Paul, it seems that this church in Corinth broke his heart more than any other and was more confused than any other. And a good portion of his letter is committed to setting them straight on a number of different issues. And it's kind of as if he saved the best one, the biggest one, the most important one for last. He's dealt with disunity, immorality, marriage, liberties, male, female roles, the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. And now, in chapter 15, he needs to help them gain a right view on the resurrection. Do you have a right view of the resurrection this morning? Because it's not really a seasonal doctrine. It is at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the very center of God's good news of salvation. And it is a concept that should impact our lives daily not seasonally. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just read the first couple verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Here comes a summary of the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see here the gospel has to be received. At some point in your life, you have to receive the gospel if you're going to be saved. It's something that you stand in, not just one time far in the past, but an ongoing standing in the gospel. It's something that saves. It's something we must hold fast to. It's something that must be believed. And as far as the content of the gospel, look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the gospel summarized. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The gospel centers on Christ. It's founded by the word of God. 
It's about you as a sinner. And for your sins, Christ died, (coughs) was buried. And what we're looking at was resurrected on the third day. This word here, raised up or resurrected, it's in this Greek tense called the perfect tense, which means that there was a, a time in the past when it happened and yet the results are for today. There's ongoing results of the resurrection. And this morning I want to address those results. I want to talk about the impact that the resurrection has on us today. And I think, I think you'll be surprised at the effect that the resurrection should have on you. Well, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is without a doubt true. And it's not my aim this morning to prove that to you. Excellent volumes have been written defending and proving the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ against all sorts of uh, slams and heresies and all sorts of aberrant thinking to try to explain away the resurrection. And the resurrection has stood true the test of time. And you could read about that in other places, but just know this, that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is like an anvil which has stood up under the hammering of a thousand hammers and the hammers have been destroyed and the anvil remains. It is without a doubt true. And you see Paul elaborate on it in verses five to eight. Here is the raised Christ. He's already died He's already raised and he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. The people in Corinth who he was writing to could go and talk to these people. They could go and talk to people who had seen Jesus, the real bodily raised up Jesus Christ. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as if. To one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Here is the resurrection. And this morning, I want to challenge you on the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, and if you truly believe it, then it has continuing impact on your life today, this morning, this afternoon. It should cause you to think different about this life, to live different in this life, and to have a shocking effect on the world around you. Now, we're celebrating our independence this weekend, and it's a good time to remember who we are as Americans, because we of all the nations and all the peoples, blessed by the freedom that we enjoy, the freedom to gather together and worship and believe what we want to believe, we need to pay special attention to this. Because if you were to go to India or China or North Korea and embrace the resurrection, it would probably have instant and sometimes devastating impact on you. But in the U.S., the impact is less. Because we are persecuted much less. So here's my challenge to you American Christians this morning. Do you believe in the resurrection? This is the question we're going to answer this morning. Do you believe in the resurrection? Now you're sitting there and you're probably thinking, of course I do. You know how many Easter's I've lived through? You know how many times I've celebrated the resurrection? And said, he is risen. Christ is risen indeed. You know how many times? Of course I believe the resurrection. Really? Do you really believe the resurrection? That's the question this morning. To help you answer that question, you need to answer a few other questions first. And, and, And the one I want to deal with right out is, what if Christ was raised? What if Jesus Christ was raised? What if it's true? What if he was raised from the dead? What do we know about that resurrection? Okay, a couple things. First, we know that Christ's resurrection is central to the gospel. You saw it already in the first couple verses of 1 Corinthians 15. The New Testament attests to it. The gospels paint the picture of it. Acts is essentially a a story of the apostles' proclamation of it. It was through the resurrection that Jesus Christ is declared the Son of God. Romans 1.4 The resurrection shows Christ's authority, John 2. And it's a bodily resurrection. 
Not some spirit floating around. Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 24, See my hands and my feet. This is after he died. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And if you look back at chapter 15, just skip over to verse 20. We're going to be in this chapter bouncing around a little bit this morning. You see that Christ is the first fruits. He's been raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits was an agricultural term, meaning the first taste of the ripening crop that would show you what the harvest is going to be like. That's what Christ was as he raised from the dead. And this is where we start to see that the resurrection has bearing on our lives, has impact on us. According to Romans 4.25, Jesus' resurrection ensures our justification. It's through the resurrection, according to 1 Peter 1, that the new birth happens. And listen to 1 Corinthians 6.14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. We are raised up. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, with Jesus. This is a neat thing, you guys. Look down, at, look down at verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. As Paul's talking about the resurrection and trying to correct their wrong thinking on it, he starts to describe what the resurrection of the dead is like for us or what it's like in general. And just look at verses 42 to 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead, he says, it is sown a perishable body. In other words, our bodies right now are perishable. It is raised up to an imperishable body. It is sown, these present bodies, in dishonor. But they will be raised up in glory. It is sown in weakness, but raised up in power. It is sown a natural body. In other words, it has natural limitations but it will be raised up a spiritual body. Here are these bodies that we're going to come into. They're incorruptible. There's no decay, no disease. Imagine this. We just here at Calvary saw the passing of two longtime saints, Ron Ellis, John Livingston. And you know what? No more decay for them. No more disease. Power. New bodies raised up. This is what happens to us. It's supposed to be glorious and resplendent. The theologians, they debate over what exactly it looks like. Okay, so what do we end up as when we die? What age are we going to be? What will we look like? Seems like they kind of land on 30 years old as the golden age. I'm 31. So you're looking at, at how, as good as it gets right here. Okay? All eternity right here. I, I hope not for your sakes. But it is powerful. And it is spiritual. Not in the sense that we're spirit beings. There is a real body. But it's just it's no, no longer those natural limitations that we have down here. And the imagery Paul uses is, is like a seed in the ground. The seed is our old bodies. And what God raises up out of that seed is something that's brand new. It's, it's familiar to what was in the ground, but it's totally different. If you take an apple seed and put it in the ground, it doesn't pop up as more apple seeds. It turns into an apple tree. And there's similarity, but there's something far grander. And that's what it's like for us. And just stop and think about this. This is so awesome. And I don't mean awesome in like the youth pastor slang awesome you know not not that kind of awesome i mean like really awe-inspiring it really should take you back and just make you step back and realize god is going to raise me up into this brand new body he's going to resurrect me it's going to be incredible it's worth dwelling on it's worth thinking about because jesus christ is raised from the dead we will be raised from the dead and in a few short years this is what all of us are going to walk into, just like Ron Ellis and John Livingston did. We're going to walk into this. I don't pity them. That is Ron Ellis and John Livingston. I don't, I don't pity them. They are walking and leaping and praising God 
raised up by God because they were in Christ. Thomas Watson says, We are not so sure to rise out of our beds as we are to rise out of our graves. This will happen. And what a thing to rejoice in. So what if Christ is raised? That was the question, right? What if Christ is raised? Then you will also be raised up with him if you embrace the gospel, which we heard earlier. You will be with Christ, raised up with him. So my question is this. Do you believe in the resurrection? If Christ was raised up and you are in him, it's going to be awesome. You believe in the resurrection. Let's look at the flip side. Next question. What if there is no resurrection? Let's let's look at that question a little bit. What if there is no resurrection? I mean, you have to be honest. The resurrection is pretty radical. It's pretty unnatural. It's miraculous. I mean, the fact that people rise from the dead. I don't know how many funerals you've been to. I've been to a few. When the casket closed, that was it. Never saw that person again. This is an amazing thing to believe and behold. But let's just play devil's advocate and say that there is no resurrection. Doesn't exist, didn't happen, isn't going to happen. What does that mean for us? Look back at verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. Because this is exactly what Paul does. He asks the question, what if there is no resurrection from the dead? This was obviously an issue for these believers in Corinth. They were struggling through this. And he answers the question. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, he's going to list some consequences of thinking that way. Here's some logical results. If there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. It's empty. It's void of truth, fruitless, resulting in nothing. Everything we're doing here this morning is nothing. It has zero profit. Because faith is vain and preaching is vain. If Christ is not raised from the dead. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. We've lied because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, guys like Ron Ellis and John Livingston have perished. No hope for them. So if you think there's no resurrection, that presents a problem. Seven problems, in fact. Christ has not been raised. Preaching is in vain. Faith is in vain. We are liars. You are still in your sins. Those who have died have perished. Just stop there. There are some devastating consequences if the resurrection is not true. So what do you think? You believe in the resurrection? You believe God raises the dead? That he raised Christ and that someday he will raise you too? Do you believe it? You've seen amazing benefits of resurrection. You've, you've seen the devastating consequences if there is no resurrection. Do you believe it? Do you really think it's true? If you're thinking, yes, yes, I believe it. I really think it's true. And I have a challenge for you. If you really believe it, then live like it's true. Live like it's true. I purposely left off verse 19. Verse 19 holds a challenge for us, especially for us here in the U.S. If you believe in the resurrection of the dead, if you believe God raised Christ from the dead, and through him, God will raise you from the dead, if you really believe that, then verse 19 will be true of you. It reads this way. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
most to be pitied. Remember the context here. This is coming right on the heels of verses 12 to 18. He's kind of wrapping up this section on what if, what if the resurrection is not true? What are the consequences of that? And he concludes by writing, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What does that mean? How does that apply to the resurrection and to us? How is that verse going to challenge us in our belief in the resurrection? This verse is potent. I'm just warning you up front. Um, I want you to catch the impact here. When I sat at the Shepherds Conference seven years ago, it was this verse that changed the course of my life. This verse. And let me show you why it's so easy to skim over it and miss the potency of it. Look at it. It says, if we hope for. In other words, if we are waiting with confidence, that's what hoping is, expecting, looking forward to, it's expectation with desire. If we have waited expectantly for Christ in this life only. In other words, if there's no hope after this life, Everything's just in this life. Everything is confined just to these 70 or 80 years. If all we have is the hope of the resurrection just here and nothing beyond, and we are wrong about the whole resurrection thing, we are are wrong about Christ rising from the dead. We ourselves have no resurrection coming. If all we have is this life to hope in Christ. That's what he's saying. And he's setting up a nice conditional statement here. If there is no resurrection from the dead, that's the context, then guess what? Guess what? I want you to stop and think, how would you finish that statement? How does your life finish that statement? What do your actions say? If there is no resurrection from the dead, if this whole Christian thing that I'm a part of isn't true, the gospel isn't true, my faith really is vain, then would you answer it with, I've still got a pretty good life. Things are still pretty good. If it doesn't end up working out down the road for the whole resurrection thing, I've still got a pretty good 70 or 80 years. Not bad. Is that how you would finish it? Is that how your life finishes that statement? Or is it like Paul? If there's no resurrection from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most miserable, most wretched. We deserve more pity than anyone else. If what we believe about Christ and what we believe about the resurrection is a lie, then we should have the most pitiable lives. So do you believe in the resurrection? Really? And really believe it? You see the impact of this verse? The answer to that question lies not in your words. I think most people here would say the right words. But in your actions. Too many of us are like those people in Isaiah's day who drew near with their words and honored with lip service but not with their hearts. And their spirituality was just rote tradition. Come in, sit down, sing, say the right things, leave, live just like the world the rest of the week. Maybe a little cleaner. I would bet very few of you in here would say there is no resurrection from the dead. Very few would say that. I would bet very few people would say that with their lips, but I wonder how many of you would say that with your lives. With your lips, you say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. And with your lives, you say, no, I could care less about the resurrection. Actions speak louder than words. We know that. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a full video of your life is very telling of what you really believe. Do you believe in the resurrection? Not with your mouths, but with your lives. Maybe some of you are thinking, how can this be? I'm not getting it. I don't get why people should pity me 
if what I believe about the resurrection ends up to be false. I'm just, I'm not making that connection. And I think that's a valid struggle. And I think it's because we don't really understand what the call of God is on Christians. We don't understand exactly what the demands are from Christ on us. And so what I want to do is just look at a few examples here. I want to look at a few examples, one negative and, and some positive examples of what the Christian life is really supposed to be, what the, what the call of God is on us. I want to start with just the regular worldly person. I want you to think about somebody whose life has no future hope, no Christ, no resurrection. Let's just say this is one of your unsaved neighbors and they don't have any thought of what lies ahead. There's nothing waiting for them. Paul gives a brief summary of their life in verse 32. I want you to look at it with me. Chapter 15, verse 32. This is the person who who has no hope, no resurrection laying ahead. And Paul says about them at the end of verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If the dead aren't raised, just live a normal, comfortable life. Keep it easy. Avoid as much pain as possible. Just get the little pleasures through this life because this is all there is. And so you should live right now for the now, for yourself. And it makes very logical, reasonable sense just to be comfortable and take it easy. Stay away from risk and sacrifice and suffering and pain. And just live a nice, enjoyable life down here. That would be a very accurate description of someone who has no future hope and no resurrection coming. Now let's look at the flip side. Let's look at lives which have a future hope, which have the resurrection. I want you to turn with me to Luke 14. We get a little picture of this from Jesus Christ of what a life would look like that does have a future and a hope and a resurrection. This would be the life of a a saved person, a life of someone who's living for the resurrection and not living just for the now. And in Luke 14, verse 13, Jesus says this, but when you give a reception, a party, a banquet, invite who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. I don't know about you. That doesn't sound like a very good party. Come on over, lame, crippled, blind people. I'll spend the whole night trying to guide you around, make sure no one gets hurt, watching out for you. I'm not going to enjoy this party at all. This is just going to be me having to give, give, give. And and I'm not even going to get anything at the end. At least if I invited some rich people, maybe they'd give me some gifts back. Or I'd get invited to their place. How in the world is this blessing? What Jesus says there, you will be blessed. Look at the last part of verse 14. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, you, you make the sacrifice now knowing that there's a resurrection coming and I'm going to get repaid. So I do the hard thing. I don't do the comfortable thing. I'll just invite my friends over and people that I like that are easy. little snippet there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul himself, who is writing this, is a great example. You guys probably are familiar with the life of Paul. He suffered much for the sake of the gospel, taking it out, through all that whole Mediterranean area and, and the suffering and the, the lashes and the persecutions and all that that he went through. He kind of summarizes it in verse 30, 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, why are we also in danger every hour? He's still answering the question, if the resurrection isn't true, why are we in danger every hour? What is the point? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. What's the point of that if there's no resurrection? If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? 
What is the gain? You see his logic? If the dead are not raised, why in the world am I risking my life? Dying daily, fighting. Why not just live? Eat, drink, tomorrow I die. Just take it easy. This is all I got. But this was Paul's life. His life was dying daily. Giving himself up. His life is reflected in Philippians 3. Just listen as I read it. He says this kind of giving his personal testimony. More than that, I count all things to be loss. And if you know Paul, you know he had a lot. A lot of religious status. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was at the religious elite, the top level. Counted it all as loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. His life is marked as loss. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That's where the gain is. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which if anyone would have had it, he probably would have. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Catch this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. See, there's a combination here. The power of his resurrection does not come without the fellowship of his sufferings. The two are together. God has created it that way. And we don't get this without this. Christ didn't raise from the dead without suffering and dying on the cross. Paul finishes off by saying, I want to be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want the death so that I can have the resurrection. And, and all Paul is doing here is, is just following in Christ's example. I mean, we would look at Paul, we would say, man, you have a messed up life. I pity you. All that you've given up, all your money, your time, your position, your reputation, your body, even your life for this cause, you have banked everything on this, Paul. And if it doesn't pan out, you lose big. That's right. If it doesn't pan out, Paul is most to be pitied. Same with his Savior, Jesus. You guys know the story of Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And his life was a mess. The guy had no place to lay his head. He never enjoyed marriage or kids. He hardly had a minute to himself. And when he did, he spent all his minutes praying to some God that was out there. Instead of enjoying himself. He didn't even live to his mid-30s. He was constantly being attacked and reviled. He experienced a horrifying and shameful death. His closest friends were losers and nobodies. He hung out with the dregs of society. This was a foolish life by the world's standards. Foolish. Pitiable. Wretched. It was a life of pity. And one time Jesus turned to the crowd... And he said this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We don't have time to talk about Hebrews 11. You can go read it on your own. And the men and women of faith who are seeking a better country and who were willing to suffer down here on earth because they had their hopes on a better country and lived by faith and gave up much. We don't have time to trace the lives and deaths of every apostle. Lives marked by suffering in almost every case martyrdom. We don't have time to sit here and read together Fox's Book of Martyrs and just see the martyrs of the ages who gave up all for the sake of Christ and lived lives that were absolutely pitiable if that's all they had. We don't have time to hop online and visit Voice of the Martyrs and read about all the present-day suffering and martyrdom that's going on all across the world. I know a guy who is losing the battle to cancer right now. He has a tumor in his head, which is gradually squeezing out his abilities to reason and think clearly. 
Now, praise God, this man was wonderfully saved years ago out of a life of kind of crazy self-indulgence. And he's been living for Christ these past years. The generous man, a man who loves to talk about Christ, a man who has tremendously affected his family, his sons, his church. And he's dying. And he doesn't have a lot to show for it. He hasn't gained a lot of possessions in this world. In fact, right now, because of all the medical bills, they're, they're losing everything. And they're going to come out with less than nothing. He's given his time, his energy, and money to the Lord over the years. Things look pretty bleak from a worldly perspective. And if you were his unsaved neighbor, you would look at him and and pity him. He committed so much to God, and now he's got nothing. It's interesting, he... He has trouble thinking straight, but the one thing that comes out clear every time he talks is the gospel. And he shares it with every visitor that comes to his house. And you think, what a waste to come to the end of your life and only have that? Nothing else? It is a waste. Unless there's a resurrection coming. It's pitiable. Unless there's something on the other side for him. And there is. Every sacrifice that he made in this world, every decision to invest up there instead of down here, every minute and dollar will be paid back a thousandfold at the resurrection. But down here, it looks pitiable. So is it starting to make sense a little bit what this verse is getting at? Why Paul would say, if there isn't a resurrection, we of all men are most to be pitied because our lives are defined by sacrifice. Just like our Savior's life was defined by sacrifice. And if nothing happens on the other side, then we've sacrificed for nothing. I pity Jehovah's Witnesses. I pity Mormons. Committed ones. I pity them because they sacrifice so much of their time and their energy and they give up their weekends And they have to do all these tasks and they have to complete all these things and go on missions and give up so much of themselves and their schedules. And and the reason I pity them is because I know what they believe. I know that they do not believe that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. And that the only way they're going to get to heaven is by faith in Christ. They don't believe that. And so I know that because they don't believe that, they are not going to heaven, but they're going to hell. And so I look at their life and I say, man, what a waste They're giving up all this time and energy and it's for nothing. They have nothing coming except a scary wake-up call. It's pitiful. But see, we, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are to be most pitied more than them. No one should give up more than us. No one should sacrifice more blood and tears and energy and effort than us. No one should deny themselves more than us. No one should love more unconditionally and sacrificially than us. No one should hold the trappings of this present life looser than we should. Your unbelieving neighbor should not pity the Mormon more than he pities you for the sacrifices you're making. Right? That's what verse 19 is saying. So do you believe in the resurrection? Let me ask you some questions. Does your life demand the resurrection from the dead as the only explanation for your behavior? Let me say it another way. Does your life reflect so clearly someone who is living for the future resurrection that your present day life of sacrifice is pitiable. What would your neighbor say? The guy who doesn't know Christ, who isn't going to be resurrected, the one who has only this life to live for. Would they pity you and the way you live? Or would they say, oh, he looks pretty much like me. We're not too different. Goes to church a little more than I do. 
Do you really believe this resurrection stuff? Does your daily life of radical, sacrificial, unexplainable, Christ-centered decision-making prove that, yes, you believe it? Now, I think there's at least three responses that you might have, and I want to see if I can dispel these. The first group I call the deaf. I'm afraid for those who hear these radical demands on God's children and respond with, well, how about those Dodgers? Just in and out. Moving on. Next thing, please. No truth. Just death. I pray that God will break through with the gospel and save you and give you ears to hear. The other group is the defensive. I'm afraid of for those who hear these radical demands in God's children and respond with a, but, but it's not wrong to have nice stuff. It's not wrong to spend my time doing that, watching that, talking about that. Hey, I give some money and some time. Get off my back. Get out of my kitchen. I'm doing okay. Leave me alone. All I can say is I'm glad Jesus didn't live that way. We'd all still be in our sins if he wasn't willing to give up everything. And I hope you will humble yourselves. And instead of saying, but, say what? What do you want me to give? What more can I give? What more can I sacrifice? What more of my time and energy and money can I give up for the Lord? The other group I want to address is the fearful. I'm afraid for those who hear these radical demands on God's children and respond with a, oh no, I have so much to change. It's just not even possible. I, how can I live like Paul and Jesus How can I live like these martyrs of old who gave up their lives and were beheaded and burned at the stake? I'll never be that kind of a Christian. I just don't think I can give up those pleasures. And if I could just make a practical recommendation to this group, you may look at your life and think so much needs to change. I don't even know where to start. I'm so caught up in just this kind of rat race culture and more, 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 me, me, me. I just don't even know where to start. And I would just say, start. Just start. Go home today. Men, if you've got a family, sit down and just start with just one thing and talk with your family and say, okay, what's just one thing we can do? And just ask God for his grace to do it and then pull the trigger. And just do it. Do something. Perhaps it's giving up some possession for the Lord or having or making some time to have your neighbor over or getting rid of some media influence that you know is just corrupting you and your family. Perhaps it's pulling the trigger on things like foster adoption. I've been so excited to see many families start to rise up and want to do that. I think that's a neat thing. If you're thinking about that, pull the trigger. Help some orphan to see Christ. Perhaps it's answering the call to missions or just having a barbecue and bringing some unsaved neighbors and coworkers over. Whatever it is, just take a step. Don't be afraid. God will take care of you. He will provide for you. Make the step of sacrifice. Ask the Spirit what He wants you to do and then pull the trigger. Remember Luke 9. Jesus had said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He goes on. For whoever wishes to save his life, will what? Lose it. Or lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Answer, nothing. No profit to gain the whole world and lose yourself. But what does it profit a man? to be pitied by the world because he has lost his life for Christ's sake. Answer, everything. Everything. God is the God of reversals. And the way he set it all up is that suffering leads to glory. And giving up is the way you you get everything. 
He who loses his life for my sake is the one who finds it. And when you die, since Christ rose from the dead, so will you. And you will stand with him and you will inherit the earth and you will share in his reign. And all of the worldly misery that you experience and all the suffering and sacrifice will be swallowed up in the joy of God. And the depths of your sacrifice on earth will be infinitely outmatched by the heights of your glory in heaven. But God wants it all. He wants it all. When you place your hope in Christ and you really give your whole self to him, it's all on him to deliver. And if he doesn't deliver, you've lost big because the Christian life is all or nothing. And I mean the real Christian life, the demand from God for all your time, not one or two days a week, not a slice here or there, everything he wants. And when you become a Christian, you are banking it all on him. You're putting all your money on that horse. And if that horse doesn't win, you lose everything. I think there's too many of us who want to just place a little money there and a little money on that horse. And maybe this one, I'm going to keep a little bit for myself just in case. And that's not Christianity. That's not true Christianity. Christianity is not a safe bet. If your life reflects a safe bet, you aren't living Christianity. No matter what you say about the resurrection, you aren't living it. God calls us to place everything on him. Here's my whole life. Here's all my stuff, all my time, all of me. I place it all on Christ. And if I lose, I lose big. I lose everything. And thus we are most to be pitied if it doesn't work out in the end. Because I've bet it all. Don't play it safe. Listen, we take nothing with us. Nothing. And in Christ, we are resurrected to a life beyond description. A life in which we will rule and in which our new bodies will enjoy limitless resources and joys without any taint of sin or sorrow, without in forever. So let it go. Let the comfort go, the reputation go. Release your grip on the money and your security. Stop being selfish with your time. Live a life for Christ that is so markedly different that your neighbor who gets to know you just shakes their head in wonder and pities you because you've died to yourself and given everything to Christ. Well, let me encourage you. If you really believe that God raises the dead that God raised Christ, that God will raise you when you die. If you really believe that, then guess what? You are free to live like it. You're free. Talking about freedom this weekend, you are free to live like it. The gospel is the power of God and has freed you from a self-centered, man-centered, greed-centered, vain life down here on earth. You have been freed you are free to let all of that go. You are free to cast off every encumbrance. You are free to live in such a way that is unexplainable by world standards. You are free to make radical decisions for Christ, decisions which could cost you everything. You are not chained to live for the here and now. You are free to deny yourself, to die daily, to take up your cross and follow Christ. 232 years ago, our founding fathers declared freedom for America. And they won that freedom with their blood. 1,981 years ago, our Savior declared freedom for us. And he won that freedom from sin with his blood and sealed the victory over death with his resurrection. We stand as Americans free because of what many people sacrificed for us in the past. And we stand as Christians freer because of what one man sacrificed for us in the past. And as Americans, we enjoy life and liberty. And as Christians, we enjoy the freedom to give up life and liberty for the sake of Christ. What is God calling you to? What radical direction is he pressing on your heart? What specific ways does he want you to live for the resurrection and not for this world? What does he want you to do? For some, you may feel like he's calling you to another country and culture to finish your days loving people, 
who have nothing and have never heard about Jesus, you are free to pursue that. For some, he may be nudging you to give up more of your time loving people, pouring into children, youth, college students, or to join up with Olive Crest and start fostering kids. I want you to know you are free to pursue that. For others, perhaps he's been weighing in on your giving, challenging you on some of the stuff that you know you don't need, some of the securities you've been storing up, and I just want you to know you are free to let those go. Free. For some of you older people, maybe God has been bugging you on how to spend your retirement years. If the resurrection is true, it's just a few more years. Don't relax now. You are free to go hard all the way to the end and pour in your lives to younger people. For many of you in here, you know there is that coworker, that neighbor, that relative, that friend who you've not shared the gospel with and God's bugging you on it. You're free to talk to them and experience the shame of being a fool, of a Jesus freak. You're free to enjoy that. Do you believe in the resurrection? If you do, then go for it. You're freed up to go for it. And my prayer for myself and each one of you here is this. May we come to the end of our lives with the brand marks of Jesus across our backs, with a life of suffering and shame for our Savior, a life that anyone who does not know the resurrection of Christ would look at and shake their head in pity. A life of truly following Christ. And a million years from now, when you're reigning with Christ, enjoying sinless happiness in your resurrected body, seeing God face to face, you aren't going to wish you had a nicer house, car, more time to spend on your earthly pleasures. You're going to wish you had poured out your blood for Jesus, who poured out his blood for you. Live a life that can only be explained by the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we can't do that without your help. If you don't come and fill us with your spirit and show us how to live this life and show each one of us in here individually what sacrifices you want us to make, it won't happen. We will tend toward our earthly pleasures. We will feed our flesh. Unless you step in, God, and make that change within us. So I pray for all the people in here, the ones that know you, that they would be seeking their lives and where they need to make sacrifices for you, that you would show them and that they would have the courage to step into it, that they'd realize that they are freed up to live entirely for you. Thank you, Father. Amen.